that don't fire you up to hear God's word, I don't know what will. Amen? Is he worthy? Are you hungry for his word this morning? Are you ready to hear the word of God proclaimed? Are you? Come on now. Listen, I know the Jaguars are playing, but it's the Jaguars. You know what I mean? (laughs) I love the Jaguars more than anybody in here, but they're still the Jaguars. We're talking about the worthy king of all creation this morning that we get to hear from, who has spoken to us, his people, through his word. We're in Leviticus chapter 21 this morning. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Um, I do want to say, um, we're going to get this week and next week will be in Leviticus chapter 22. Hopefully you've already read it. And then we're going to take another little break. That's because on October 15th, I'm going to help uh, my my brother Ryan Mason out. If you don't know who Ryan Mason is, he's a a pastor at First Baptist Church of Hilliard. Um, He's having thyroid surgery and needs pulpit supply. So I offered to, to go and preach for him. But we have a special guest, Pastor Mark Souder is coming from Set Free Ministries, which is a ministry we support, it's a drug and rehabilitation center, um, and they have their own little church. And so, uh, and he is a wonderful pastor with a great testimony, and I'm kind of wishing I could be here uh, to hear him. And so, mark your calendars, October 15th. Obviously, you're coming to church anyways that day, uh, but be here for, for that, and we'll have a wonderful time. Uh, and pray for me as I go get to preach in a, in a like-minded church. Listen, you guys do not know how blessed we are in this community to have several pastors who are like-minded, who are partners in the kingdom uh, of, of building God's kingdom together. And so I'm, I'm thankful to be able to do that. Leviticus chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole thing, so you've got to remain standing. If you, if you sit down, you won't get struck down, so that's okay. Um, but uh, I do want to read this for you. Um, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, None shall defile himself for the dead among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, and his brother. Also, his virgin sister who is near to him, who has no husband, for her he may defile himself. Otherwise, he shall not defile himself, being a chief man among his people to profane himself. They shall not make any bald place on their heads, nor shall they shave the edges of their beards, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. They shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God." Therefore you shall consecrate him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the harlot, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. Verse 10, He who is the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes, nor shall he go near any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his mother, nor shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am the Lord." And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a defiled woman or a harlot. These he shall not marry, but he shall take a virgin of his own people as wife. Nor shall he profane his posterity among his people, for I, the Lord, sanctify him. Verse 16. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, 
No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach. A man blind or lame who has a marred face or any limb too long, a man who has a broken foot or hand or is a hunchback or a dwarf or a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scab or is a eunuch. No man of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both the most holy and the holy. Only he shall not go near the veil or approach the altar because he has a defect. Lest he profane my sanctuaries, for I the Lord sanctify them. And Moses told it to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Father, we do thank you. For even the difficult text, Father, for even the text where, Lord, we we probably have never heard a sermon proclaimed from this very text, and yet it is your word, Lord, and it is beneficial for us. Lord, it trains us in righteousness. It allows for us to see our great need for you. And so, Lord, would your spirit work mightily among us, illuminating your word, enlightening our eyes to its truth. Would you make us more like Christ for those of us who are in Christ and for those of us who are not, Father, would you draw us near and help us understand how we're able to draw near to your throne by the grace and blood of Jesus Christ built on our behalf. Lord, do your work as we trust that you will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I had a church member text me this week after I gave them Leviticus 21 and they read it and said, I'm going to quote Ricky Ricardo, you got some splaining to do. Um, <laughs> And indeed I do. Again, if you're, if you're new here, by the way, we've been going line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter now through the book of Leviticus for almost, uh, let's see, we started in January, I believe, so uh, right at 10 months. And so uh, we're coming now to this chapter 21. And one thing I want to point out to you is we often see in scriptures, uh, in the scripture, uh, the statement that we as believers in Christ are to draw near to God. Right. Uh, in fact, even just in the book of Hebrews, I know one of our grow classes is going through the book of Hebrews. Uh, just a couple of these, uh, this repeated command comes throughout this book. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So come to the throne of grace. Draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 7 Verse 25 says, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come or draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 21 would tell us, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, That is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Drawing near is both a command and privilege for those who trust in Christ. I would suggest that that's actually exactly what our text is about today. In our family catechisms we do on a nightly basis, we ask our kids this question, where is God? And our kids answer, God is everywhere. My question then, if that's true, which it is, 
How do we draw near to a God who is everywhere? What does that even, what does that even look like? Well, let me start by, by defining what the opposite of drawing near to God is. That is, to be far from God. To not draw near to God is to be at enmity with God. It is to be His enemy and to be under judgment. It is to be an object of His just and holy wrath and and face impending dreadful condemnation. So so to draw near to God is, is is the counterpoint of that. It is to be in right relationship with Him. Drawing near is to enjoy perfect fellowship with Him. It is to have unimpeded access to God and bask in the joy of His love. Now, Now, in our context in the book of Leviticus, in Israel, this this whole concept of drawing near to God was symbolized in their sacrificial priestly system that consisted of God dwelling in a specific uh, geographical place. His special presence was found in what is called the holiest or the holy of holies inside his sanctuary as part of the tabernacle. That is where God dwelt. And so to draw near to him literally meant come near to that place where his special presence dwelt. That's what it meant to draw near to God in our context in Israel. And as I consider that today, I would suggest we have to keep in mind that this, everything we see here, was a simple picture of what it really means to draw near to God. To have unbroken fellowship with him. To bask in his joy and the joy of his love and acceptance. So, okay, what then does it take to draw near to God? I would actually suggest the big idea of our text today in Leviticus 21 is no one can draw near to God without perfection and holiness. That's what Leviticus 21 really is all about. No one can draw near to God without perfection in holiness. I was told that my, my outline is excessive uh, today, but that's okay. I've given you all the information I think you should know. Um, so follow along if you can. So no one can draw near to God without perfection and holiness. So if that's it, then, then what does it take then to draw near to God? Perfection and holiness. Now, before we dig into the text, there are still a couple of preliminary considerations that have to be presented, okay? The first of these is the context of of Leviticus itself, the context of Leviticus 21 and the context of the book. Everyone here at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables who has been here for these last 10 months should almost be able to rehearse this with me by now, but I won't put you to that. The, The context is God is redeeming Israel out of Egypt and he is bringing them to himself at Mount Sinai, entering into a covenant relationship with them. He is binding himself to these people. He is making them his people and him their God. Now, now we also know that, that that very context presented a problem from the very beginning. That is, God is holy. That problem number one is a holy God is dwelling in the midst of an unholy people. That's a problem. While there are many things that could be said about God's holiness, certainly, at the minimum, it has to be stated that His holiness means that He is morally pure. God does not 
sin. He cannot tempt anyone to sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He will not wink at sin. He cannot simply forgive and forget. And obviously, that's a huge problem for God dwelling in the midst of an unholy people. Because Israel was not holy. And so there's where the tension kind of lies. There is the problem. And what's the solution? The solution is the Lord established the sacrificial system to atone for their sins. God graciously gives them the sacrificial system by which a holy priesthood can draw near to God in order to offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of God's people. The sacrificial system was God's answer to remain in right relationship to him. The priest would would serve as the mediators. They would draw near on behalf of Israel. But that leads us to another problem, though, doesn't it? Problem number two, if you're counting. Where was God going to find perfectly holy people to serve as priests? Where was God going to find perfectly holy people to serve as priests? The answer is, of course, he wasn't. There was no one in Israel, or anywhere else for that matter, who had maintained perfection in holiness. So if that's the case, then then who was going to draw near to God to offer the sacrifices to atone for the sins of, of God's unholy people then? Well, solution number two. The Lord established a ritual system that symbolized perfection and holiness. That's what he did. The Lord established a ritual system that symbolized perfection in holiness. He established a system by which the priest could go through certain rites that would purify them, ritually speaking, in order to symbolize everything that was required, which was actual perfection and holiness. Okay? Let me ask, and I'll answer, a critical question right out of the gate so we don't get distracted by this. Did the priest in ancient Israel actually attain at any point perfection and holiness? It's a trick question, as you should be used to by now. Because the answer is actually yes and no. How? Well, as we've said, through the ritual system, God looked upon them as though they were holy. He allowed them to draw near. But did they actually in them and themselves and their actions ever attain perfection and holiness? No. In fact, that's the very reason why they constantly and consistently had to atone for their own sins before they could go before the Lord on behalf of Israel to atone for the sins of the people. So so this sacrificial system, listen, the, the whole system is actually a tutor. The system was meant to teach all people about the holiness of God, about the sinfulness of man, and about our desperate need for a mediator to make atonement for us. So those are the preliminary considerations, and those things need to be kept in mind as we move through the rest of this text if we're going to understand it. Okay, that's just the introduction. I I bet this is already kind of long, but we're going to keep moving now through the body. What we see in the body of the text, thank you for your feedback and assurance, by the way. I always appreciate that. Uh, The body of this text is actually three guidelines for the priesthood. Three guidelines for the priesthood. So remember, context. In, In order to protect 
the priest holiness that the Lord granted them, but also to safeguard the Lord's holy sanctuary, each of these three guidelines would drive home the fact that no one can draw near to God without perfection in holiness. That's a big idea, right? Okay, let's look at the first. The first is limit funerals. That is the first guideline to the priest in order to maintain their, their ritual holiness in the eyes of God. Limit funerals. We read in verse 1, None shall defile himself for the dead among his people. Limit funerals. The simple fact is, dead bodies defiled in ancient Israel. Dead bodies defile. We've already seen this in Leviticus in regards to the corpse of an animal. But now it's also clear that it is the case in, for the body of a human being. Uh, we, we see that said explicitly in Numbers 19 verse 11 where we read, He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. Seven days, remember, meant that this was a major impurity. Not only direct contact, or contact, even just being in the proximity or vicinity of a dead body would make a person ritually impure. Obviously, similar to funerals in our culture, it was impossible to attend without being in the proximity of a dead body. Here's the problem. Dead bodies defile, and defiled priests can't draw near. It's the second half of your fill-in-the-blank there. Dead bodies defile, and defiled priests can't draw near. Verse 6, they've been made holy by the Lord, set apart to minister before Him, and to draw near to the Lord on behalf of the people to atone for their sins. They couldn't do so if they were defiled. So defiled priests can't draw near. But we also see in verse 5 that pagan practices pollute. Pagan practices pollute and therefore polluted priests can't draw near. That's what we're reading about in verse 5. It's, it's one of those things we've probably read this week and have no idea what to do with. I'm sure Pastor Justin was just pondering his life, right? Like, what do I do with this beard? Is it cut correctly? Have I trimmed it accurately? Can I even lead worship this way? He wasn't. Don't worry. Uh, but it's one of those things we read and don't know what to do with. Why couldn't the priest make a bald spot? I didn't touch that one. Notice that, by the way. I could. Um, and uh, Just kidding. Uh, or do anything they wanted with their beard. Why couldn't they do this? This doesn't have a place in our culture, right? But, but these were, again, culturally, these were what we call mourning rites, grieving rituals that the pagans practiced in. They participated in these things uh, that Israel was not to practice. Remember the whole context of the holiness code. Israel was to be separate from the nations and not like the other nations. So Israel was not to practice, especially the priest. It's not utterly different than a pastor or any one of us attending a funeral and in our grief being tempted to get drunk. Why? Because that is not an uncommon thing to happen after a funeral in our culture. The problem is... Pagan practices pollute, and polluted priests can't draw near to the Lord. A priest who has participated in the pagan practices has become polluted, and they can't draw near to the Lord. So, in verses 2 through 4, the, the priest could not attend many funerals. His funerals are limited to those of his close family, his mom, dad, daughter, brother, sister, if she had not married, 
Now, it's not explicitly stated, but, but most commentators believe he could also attend the funeral of his wife. In verse 4, that, that that's actually referring to his in-laws, but his bone of bone and flesh of flesh, yes. But a couple of notes here before we move past this. This limiting of funerals did not mean they could not grieve or express grief. But it did mean they had to express it in a way that honored and glorified the Lord. Second, not only did this mean they couldn't express grief, but second, these expectations, I'm sorry, these exceptions, they're actually concessions by the Lord. We don't think about it that way, do we? But they are. They're an allowance. The fact that a priest could attend the funeral of his wife, brother, sister, if she was unmarried, father, mother, that's a concession. It's an allowance. The Lord is graciously allowing a priest to defile himself. That's what would happen when he intended the funeral of a mom, dad, or other close relative. It's not that in this case you wouldn't be defiled, but the Lord is making a concession for that. And while this might seem hard to imagine, not being able to attend the funeral of a mother or father, it's, it's actually not unheard of even in our culture. Right? Consider, for instance, the military. If a person is deployed in enemy territory... They're not called back because one of their close relatives passed away. Well, there are similar situations in our own culture that require the same level of commitment. The priest had an obligation, a priority, and as hard as the priest had it, the high priest had it even harder. He was prohibited from even attending any funeral whatsoever with the only possible exception being that of his wife. It's not mentioned, but it's, it's possible that he could have attended that funeral. Regardless, the point is still clear. His restrictions, the high priest, were more stringent than any of that of the priest. Because he didn't just draw near to the altar, did he? He actually went where? Into the Holy of Holies, that holiest place. He had to be holiest, symbolically, because he drew nearest. The high priest actually had to attain and man- maintain perfection in holiness. Holy of holies, if you aren't familiar with that term, it's just it's the inner part of the sanctuary we talked about before where only one person once a year was allowed to enter. It's where the Lord's special presence dwelt and only one time a year the high priest, after many more rituals to cleanse himself, may step into the holy of holies for but a moment. To offer up incense and sprinkle blood to atone for the incense of his people, for the sins of his people. The Holy of Holies was as close as Israel would ever come to the Lord. So the high priest could not be defiled even for his own parents or children. And at the end of the day, there was only one person in Israel who had been granted perfection and holiness. That is or was the high priest. He was the holiest in Israel. And by God's gracious provision through the ritual systems, the only way he could be seen as holy. So, okay, why did all that matter? Well, the answer to that is easier to see through another question. What exactly did the priest do? Right? What was the main thing the priest accomplished? They officiated the sacrifices in order to atone for the sins of God's people. So, so really, the application at this point is, this matters... Because atonement matters. Atonement, that act of satisfying divine justice on behalf of guilty sinners. 
This matters because defiled and polluted priest meant no sacrifices on the altar. No sacrifices on the altar meant no atonement for sin. No atonement for sin means God's justice was not satisfied. God's justice must be satisfied. And so if the priest disregarded their holiness, if they became defiled and polluted, they could not stand in the gap for the people. They could not draw near to the altar and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to atone for their sins. And therefore, we had to limit funerals. That's the first guideline. The second guideline we see in the text is the Lord also forbid marriages. He not only limited, limited funerals, but he forbid certain marriages. Verse 7 teaches us that sexual immorality soils. It makes one dirty, defiled. Sexual immorality distorts God's design for sexual relations. We saw in Leviticus 18, right, that all sexual relationships outside of marriage between a man and a woman soil a person's soul. It makes them dirty. It defiles and degrades the human body and spirit. And soiled priests can't draw near to the Lord. Hopefully you're picking up a theme here. Similar to the effects of attending a funeral, a marriage to a harlot or defiled woman makes the priest unfit to draw near to God. The effects here are actually worse than that of a funeral. Because unlike a funeral where a priest would be clean after seven days, in the case of marriage, the priest would no longer be fit to serve. The marriage would disqualify the priest from drawing near to the Lord. We also see something else regarding the forbidden marriages in verse 7. It is that divorce desecrates and desecrated priests can't draw near to the Lord. Divorce desecrates the one flesh union that God established between husband and wife. A union that was intended to be permanent. Divorce always desecrates, it always distorts God's intended purposes for marriage. The priests were to be exemplary, avoiding even the appearance of evil. And so to enter into a one flesh union with a divorced woman would have jeopardized the priest's holiness. It would have desecrated his office and calling. Now listen, our text doesn't say why the marriage to a divorced woman would desecrate a priest in his office. It simply implies that it would. And this is important to understand again. Those of you who have been moving through Leviticus with us know this. But I want to make sure we keep it in front of us, particularly here. What we're dealing with, again, are ritual categories, not moral categories. While there's often a great overlap between the two, the two are not the same. And so, so as one might become ritually impure without doing anything morally wrong. Okay? Keep that in mind. But what we know for our text was that the priest was not committed to marry a divorced woman. To do so would have disqualified him from drawing near to the Lord. It would have desecrated his office, his holiness and calling. Once again, just recurring the theme here, we see the calling and regulation for the high priest would be even more strict. He's prohibited from even marrying a widow. He must marry a virgin of his own people. That is, she must be from the tribe of Levi. Perfect purity was the prerequisite, a symbol of the high priest's perfection and holiness. So, okay, what in the world does this one have to do with us? Right, Because this seems so far removed from our day and age. Well, actually it's got quite a bit to do with us. See, perfection and holiness is still necessary to draw near to the Lord. 
Did you know that? Let me say this another way. You need to attain and maintain perfection and holiness to draw near to God. Now, let me respond with two potential stumbling blocks here. First, we need to hear this one. There is no such thing as holy enough. There isn't. I remember in Bible college I had a long conversation with someone about the, this kind of current fad that was good enough parenting, right? Conversation went to the likes of you don't have to be a perfect parent. You just have to be good enough. Kids are resilient and they, they do well with good enough parenting. You don't have to be perfect. Friends, that's not the case with the Lord. Good enough holiness is not holiness. It's called unholy. That's the only category. Perfection in holiness is what is required. Think about it this way. There's probably at this time in this context around 2 million people in Israel, close to it. Do you not think there was one person in all of Israel that was holy enough by your estimation and standard? Like, just think about it. Those people, there's several of those people in this room for me, right? They're just, they're just a solid guy, right? They're, they're just, he's just a good person. Those people who always seem to have a good attitude, that never have an unkind word to say about anyone, a person who would just give you the shirt off his back, just a swell guy. There had to be at least one person who just seemed to get along with everyone. And yet, according to this text and the rest of Leviticus, that person we might have in mind is no more able to draw near to the Lord than an adulterer or murderer. Your estimation of holiness is nowhere near the perfection in holiness that is actually required to draw near to the Lord. That brings me to the second stumbling block. Someone here might be thinking, okay, so what? Like, so Israel doesn't draw near to the Lord. Just stay away from the tabernacle. If you're that concerned about it, just go on to Edom. If you can't draw near, then don't. I mean, look, you only live once, right? Enjoy it. I would simply remind you of what I said at the very beginning. To not draw near to the Lord is not to escape from Him. We are talking about the God who is everywhere. To be far from the Lord, to be the opposite of drawing near to the Lord, is to be His enemy. It is to be under His wrath in imminent danger of His impending judgment. Here's the reality. There's a day quickly approaching when regardless of whether or not you think you're drawing near to the Lord, He will draw near to you. And if you have not drawn near to the Lord, then He's going to draw near to you in judgment, not in favor or salvation. So therefore, these guidelines are, perfect, are, are important for us today because perfection and holiness is still required. Our final section here. We see not only are funerals limited and marriages forbidden, but, but physical imperfections, they're actually excluded. The Lord excludes imperfection. If you thought the first two regulations were a little strict and uncomfortable in our egalitarian culture, fair warning, you're going to hate this one. The Lord says priests must be physically whole and complete to draw near to him. They must be free from all physical limitation and deformities. Say that again. I think that's in your your point somewhere. 
The Lord says priests must be physically whole and complete to draw near to him. They must be free from all physical limitation and deformities. Blind, lame, limb too long, broken foot or hand need not apply. Descendants of, of Adam or Aaron who had any physical abnormalities could not draw near to the Lord. Now, I, I want to emphasize this because our text in verses 16 through 24 emphasize it. Four times we read that very statement. See, it's been implied up to this point, but now it's actually stated four times in this one section. They may not draw near. They cannot approach the Lord. Verse 18, right, says, For any man who has a defect shall not approach. Verse 21, we won't look at, but it's actually stated twice there. He shall not come near. Verse 23, only he shall not go near the veil or approach the altar. The lesson is clear in regards to the priest. No one can draw near to the Lord without perfection and holiness. Now, don't miss this. The physical wholeness and health required of the priest was always to reflect a wholeness of love and devotion to the Lord. The the external was to be coherent with the internal. The body was to symbolize the purity of the soul. And this is rich symbolism of what the Lord requires of each and every one of us. No one can draw near to the Lord, as we said, without perfection and holiness. Now, before you call the PC police or file a complaint with the EEOC, realize something. This regulation is not a statement about the worth of physically handicapped people at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. Our passage makes clear that this is not about dishonoring or promoting a low view of the physically handicapped. Look at verse 22 with me. Look at what it says in verse 22. In the middle of all of this, it says, He may eat the bread of his God, both the most holy and the holy. The holy things and the most holy things. Don't don't forget that the most holy is something that is only reserved for the priest. Only the priest can eat the most holy things, and they eat it right in front of the sanctuary. The handicapped, those with defect, are invited right smack dab to the table. That's a beautiful demonstration of the Lord's acceptance, compassion, and graciousness. The lame, the blind, the broken, they were invited not to atone for sins, but they were invited to eat from the king's table. The physically whole priest who had perfection in ritual purity, who had been called by God, who was able because of his perfection to draw near to holiness to the Lord, that's the one who would offer the sacrifice of atonement on behalf of them. But they, those who had defect, would still eat from the very best of the land and the Lord would provide for them. They would still eat of the first fruits and they would do it right in front of the sanctuary. I mean, they would feast at the king's table. Listen, That's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Speaking of, okay, here's what I want us to do. Most of you are probably familiar with those books that have multiple endings. Did you ever read those as a kid, right? You read one track and then you choose the next track, one, two, three, four, and then you choose a conclusion. Yes, no, maybe, hello. All right. Well, I I feel like, I know this is a difficult text, and I know I probably have, have stepped on some toes of, those of us who are all for equal opportunity. And so I want to give you equal opportunity this morning. I want to present to you three different endings. And you guys get to choose which one you prefer. 
How's that sound? You know that this is already set up not to go well. Okay. Here they are. The first one is what I call conclusion A. Conclusion A is you can reject a high priest. You can reject a high priest. Here's the conclusion. You just you sit in your seat and you say, well, this was a nice sermon. And even that, you're probably just being polite. But, but still, I have, I have no interest in drawing near to the Lord. I, I'll take my chances and I will live my best life now. That's fine. I, I want to say to you, I, I do not suggest that ending. I implore you to reconsider that conclusion. Because if that's the ending that you prefer, then I would simply say this. The last word in that ending is judgment. That's how that ending concludes. I hate to spoil the end of the story for you, but, but it's judgment. Conclusion B. This one seems a little better. Reject a high priest is the first. Uh, conclusion B, be your own high priest. Be your own high priest. Ignore my words and bank on the fact that you are actually holy enough. That you and God are good because you are a decent person. You are nice, generous, and, and gosh darn it, people like you. Or, you know, the other side of that. Realize that you're not a good enough person, but just strive to be better. Strive for holiness. Try really, really hard. Maybe even implement some of this stuff. Take some lessons straight out of the text. Apply the text directly. Don't grieve or act like the nations. Don't engage in sexual morality. Don't be spiritually blind or lame. Just don't do it. Now, if you're going to be your own high priest, you're a little bit stricter. But listen, if you're trusting in your own perfection and holiness, the final word in your story is also going to be judgment. It's still the same conclusion. Then there's conclusion C. This is the one I actually prefer. This one is... Trust the high priest. You could write, trust the high priest. The conclusion of of this sermon goes like this. You are not the high priest in our text. You want to know who you are? Do you want to know who you are in the text, Christian? You were the dead corpse. That's your place in the story. You were dead in your sins and without hope apart from the intervention of God. You needed life. You needed God to give you a new heart. You are not the faithful priest in our text. Friend, you were the harlot. You were defiled and soiled in desperate need of a husband who would cleanse you and love you despite your sordid past. You were not the physical whole and healthy priest in our text. You were the spiritually blind, deaf, lame, and broken son or daughter of Adam. You were disabled in spirit and in desperate need of a high priest who would literally pick you up and carry you to the king's table. Now I proclaim to every one of you this morning that Jesus Christ is indeed that high priest. That Jesus Christ attained and maintained perfection and holiness throughout his entire life. Christ is our perfect high priest who didn't avoid touching our spiritually dead souls and dying bodies. Instead, he took our death upon himself that we might live forever with the Father. 
Christ took our defilement that He might present us to Himself as a pure virgin bride. Christ, our perfectly holy high priest, has not only carried us to the King's table, but He has actually tore down the veil, opened it, and has brought us right into the very presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, where we have perfect fellowship with our Creator. We draw nearer to God than even the high priest in our text in Israel because our high priest is Jesus Christ. Christ has become our perfection in holiness. And so we finish what we started in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Verse 19, which which told us because of this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, how? By the blood of Jesus By a new and living way, which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Listen, friend, if you've never drawn near to the Lord like this, I simply implore you to stop living for yourself. Trust in Christ as your high priest. Because for those of us who trust in Christ alone for their salvation, who repent of their own life, their old life, their former way of living, the final word of this story is, draw near. Come and enter into my Father's rest for all of eternity. Christian, that's the conclusion of our story. Is it going to be the conclusion of yours. Would you stand as we close with a word of prayer? Oh, gracious Father, we simply thank you for Jesus. We thank you that our striving has not ultimately defined who we are, but instead it's your Son's living and dying, His being risen from the dead. Father, we trust your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in His high priestly work on our behalf. We thank you that we can draw near because he even now stands at the right hand of his Father interceding on behalf of us. We love you because you have loved us first in him. Lord, would you be with us now as we enjoy grace upon grace in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's one here this morning who recognizes that they have ignored the command to draw near that you would show them the truth of your great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that you've sent. Lord, if there's one who has been striving to be their own priest, who thinks that they're holy enough to be their own priest, Father, would they see their frailty, they see their inability to pay for their own sins, and would they trust in the true and better Adam, Lord, who came to die for our sins, who is in himself perfection and holiness, and would they rest and trust in his finished work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. As we come to the time of our invitation and conclusion of our service, I hope the, the application is very clear. For those of us who are in Christ, thinking of what it takes for you to draw near to the Lord and knowing what the Lord has done on your behalf in order to bring you near, how much more... Does that drive you to want to live a life of faithful obedience to Him? It's simple, right? Sometimes we overcomplicate the application and give you too many steps. Here it is. Christ, the great high priest, is perfection and holiness. 
So you don't have to be. You simply trust in him. Therefore, live your life more honorably before him. That's it. And and look, I don't have to tell you what that looks like. Right? He's already told you in the word of God. I guarantee you that if I were to sit you down and ask you, how do you believe you could live your life more honorably before the Lord? You'd be able to really tell me. So whatever it is, let, let the gospel be the thing that drives you toward a desire of holiness. Why? Because he's worthy and he's good. And he shows that to us in the sacrifice of his son. Of course, if you're here this morning and, and maybe you recognize you, you are not in a draw near type relationship with the Lord. That you are actually far from the Lord. You are at enmity with him. Would you hear the beauty of the gospel this morning? That what was required of you was perfection and holiness. And what has been given to you in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is the perfection and holiness that you actually need. It doesn't mean that when you come to Christ, all of a sudden you will stop sinning altogether and be perfect. But here's the beauty. When you come to Christ, God the Father does not see you in your sin anymore. He simply sees the perfection and holiness of His Son. So your relationship with your Creator has been restored by the righteousness of another, and therefore now you desire to live for Him. There's a change in your heart because of the great gift of the gospel that propels you to want to. And so if you're here this morning and you, you simply really just do not believe you have a draw-near relationship with the Lord, that you are His by faith, I, I want to invite you, please, at the end of our service, come down front. I will be here uh, to talk with you about what this looks like more. Stay as long as you want. If there's someone already talking to me, just, just please do not leave until you've done exactly what the Lord has called you to do this morning in the stirring of your spirit. Maybe you're here and it looks like greater faithfulness and following through a believer's baptism or, or joining a local church membership so you can belong to the family of God in the local church. Whatever the Lord has, I pray that you would respond with faithful obedience. It's been a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Thank you so much for your attention. And I, I don't know about you, but I thank God for the book of Leviticus, how it shows us the beauty of who Christ is. I know Jesus better because of what's written in the book of Leviticus. And for that, he's worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. Brother Danny McMillan's going to close us in a word of prayer. Then we'll stand for the benediction and be dismissed. Brother Danny.